Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. So, as Paul said, Nigel and Joe aren't here, we are um, looking at understanding God's judgment, and we're looking at it in the kind of lens of stories through the Old Testament. So, um, just keep in mind that the context is um, we haven't quite got to how Jesus redeems God's judgment and the full picture. This is this is a snapshot of God's judgment in the Old Testament, and we will kind of come back and and look at how. Um, we can apply it to our lives. Sometimes in my role as a teacher, I get um, I have to go and cover another lesson. And uh, as an English teacher, sometimes I go and I get a science lesson, and that's all fine and straightforward. And sometimes I pick it up and I look at it and go, do you know what, guys? We're just going to do some posters today. We're just going to get our colouring pens out, and we're going to talk about our favourite summer holidays. And when I looked at the material for today, I had that kind of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> And Nigel said, it's a mini-series, it's, um, it's judgment, that will be in the middle. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, if you like, you could swap, I'm doing violence or sex of marriage. I was like, oh, no, no, I'll stick with judgment. <laughs> um, but there isn't really a Sunday morning equivalent to uh, doing some posters. So we're, gonna, we're just going to plough through together. Um, and it is a, it's a complex and interesting topic. And one that I can assure you is not straightforward um, and... The subject of God's judgment shows us clearly that the story of the Bible that we are examining through our year of biblical literacy is is a cohesive one, that it starts off in Genesis and it gets retold over and over again in the Old Testament and then does culminate with Jesus' life, death and resurrection and then how we as his followers choose to apply that to our lives. And to understand God's judgment is to understand more of his character and more of our own stories as a result. So today we're going to look at a few things like what the Israelites would have perceived the judgment of God to be in the Old Testament. Um, In the context that we're in, we're sort of in the, I think we're kind of, if you're following along, you should be in the prophets. Um, If you're slightly lagging behind like me, I'm in um, Samuel. Um, but we're going to look at what it means um, both at a micro level as an individual and then as a kind of micro, um, macro level and hopefully have also some time for a reflection on what God might be saying. So spending a bit of time um, looking inwards, looking up and then looking outwards. Um, is this going to work? Oh, great. There we go. Yes, that's what we're doing. Um, So yes, we're going to, judgment is part of God's rulership, and then the little micro story we're going to see, have a look at Cain and Abel, and then the macro is then God delivering um, the Israelites from, oh, we've gone a bit too far, um, from Egypt. Um, Last time I spoke, I spoke on generosity, and um, to begin, I got some of my um, students to share what they thought generosity meant. I thought um, that might be quite enlightening to do um, this time again, Uh, but I thought I would pull out the big guns. I didn't um, bother with my 12-year-olds. I asked um, my A-level students because I thought judgment is quite complex, Um, and they had some interesting things today um, to say, and they said one of the things was judgment is being overly critical. It's taking an idea of what you think someone Someone's like and just applying it to them, not looking at the whole picture. Um, someone that thinks some being judgy is thinking that you're better than somebody else. Um, somebody did say, Oh, what about God's good judgment? It is a Catholic school that we go to, and she said, What about God's good judgment? All the rest of them were like, Nah. Um, and one of the things that they that the conversation um, kind of brought up over and over again was the feeling of not measuring up. 
Um, and that the word judgment, if we were going to use it in a positive context, um, we weren't going to use that word at all. We would come up with something with a more positive connotation. So when we think of the word judgment, we often have a real negative um, view of what's happening. So many people in society and also in the church don't really like the word because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Like my girls, they thought that it made us feel like we have been weighed and found wanting. Uh, we all have ideas about the way we should be living and then we sometimes unconsciously um, impose them on other people, um, which then makes us the judges. Um, and there are lots of times in life where we feel like we have been judged in unfair circumstances. Um, like we're judged on our outward appearance and not the quality of our heart or our character. If you've had this happen to you, it's not a very pleasant experience. I've had a few circumstances over the, oh, the last few years where maybe I've um, said something or I have thought something. And it's, well, I, when I've said something and it's been taken completely out of context um, and I've been judged really harshly because of that. But the people who've been doing the judging haven't known the whole conversation or my intention or even the whole situation. Um, therefore, we feel sometimes that being judged definitely feels negative. And we don't like to think about God judging other people because the simple uh, reason we know that we'll be found wanting. Uh, it can sometimes sound a bit scary. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about when God comes to judge at the end of time, he'll separate those who have done well from those who haven't, like in the parable of the sheep and the goats. However, if we understand it properly, God's judgment is good news, and we'll try and unpack that a little bit more this morning. All right. Many of you have, uh, just to illustrate, many of you have met my, um, my boys. They'll be the ones who've kicked the football at the back of church that's narrowly missed your head uh, while we've been up here practicing. Um, so sorry about that. Um, but uh, just to give you a little um, home example, um, both boys play in a Saturday morning league. Uh, one match was a home fixture and the um, Seth's coach asked Michael to referee the match. Um, during the second half, Seth made a rather enthusiastic sliding tackle, which missed the ball, took out the opposition player, uh, and Michael, as the referee, had no choice but to award a free kick to the opposing team, uh, from which they then scored to equalise um, the match. Uh, so Seth was pretty furious with uh, Michael. How could he make that kind of judgment against his very own son? Um, and there were a lot of slightly um, glaring evil glances over in his direction. But thankfully for the Taylor household, Seth redeemed himself later on in the match by scoring the winning goal, and harmony was restored that weekend. <laughs> but what if it had been the other way around? What if because Seth was Michael's son, he had just looked the other way and, and made a judgment call that, oh no, that wasn't really a foul. If challenged, maybe said, oh, well, do you know, that's, we're just going to play that way today. Don't worry about it. If you were the other child's parent, you would be pretty outraged at the judgment of that um, blind referee. Um, we need boundaries. So we, football games need rules. Um, we need rules in society. We can't kind of say as we drive through the city, green lights mean stop and red lights mean go. That's just how we're going to do this today. You can't do that unless you're, on a, unless you're a cyclist and you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, 
But it doesn't, you know, the boundaries make total, it would be total chaos if we didn't have them. And so if we apply that on a bigger scale, whether we like the idea of judgment or justice or not, we understand this principle that if we don't live within some kind of boundaries, something that holds all of this together, it will be chaos. And yet, I think you'd agree that we live in a world that is a mess. There are plenty of um, blind referees. Um, there are plenty of corrupt politicians. There's not enough money for uh, schools and hospitals. And there's scandals in Hollywood. And we just need somebody to come and make it right. So just um, because I like the words and meanings of them, I thought I would do a little digging deeper. This, uh, I feel like a real preacher going to the Hebrew. So um, I'm just various meanings of judgment and to judge. Um, and uh, the Hebrew word shafat has a double meaning. It means to rule and to judge. Um, and translators sometimes use the word interchangeably. Judgment is a regal function and the prerogative of the king or the ruler. So to reign is to judge. To judge, therefore, is not only legal but regal. A person doesn't judge and then become the king. It's the other way around. Judgment is a kingly function. And judgment is inseparable from the covenant that God sets up with his people. He has pledged to execute that covenant by seeing that the terms are carried out. He needs to punish the people who defy the covenant and defend those who seek protection under it. So for that reason, judge can have the meaning of on the left to condemn or punish or destroy. Or it can mean to help, deliver, save and redeem. And the Israelites would have seen God's judgment as part of his rulership. God's judgment is about how he rules, his kingdom and his authority and what he has um, over his people and what he's created. So even though we have a monarchy, we don't live in a kingship. It doesn't really follow, it doesn't make sense to us to have the queen, as lovely as she is, be involved with the decisions that are a part of our everyday lives. Judgment on a societal level in 2019 means that the maybe has been a crime committed or an offence, and we need someone to step in and intervene and punish the naughty person. Maybe when you think about a judge, you think about um, someone who looks like that, an old man in a robe um, standing behind a desk, but that is not the way Israel thought about judges. They only came from the highest authority in the land, and the king, he was the only one who could make judgments over the people. And so judgment was deeply connected to the people. The judges now make decisions, some good, some bad, um, but as people from Winchester going about our day-to-day -day lives, we don't really have that much connection to what happens in the courts, whether or not this person pays back what he owes or that person gets a speeding fine or even gets put into prison, as generally it doesn't have a lot on our day-to-day -day lives. But in Israel, everything came before the king and was brought underneath his rulership. It didn't mean dealing with each case in isolation, but looking at how things would affect the group um, and society as a whole. And I don't know if you, um, to kind of think about this in a, in a way, I guess it would mean coming and looking at the government. And instead of looking at, does the person on... Um, 
on Broad Lane in Swanmore follow the rules. It's no, are the laws of England, are they good and do they uphold justice and, and do they um, show people the right way to live, not do the, the people, the tiny people who it applies to, do they do the right thing every day? It's sort of a judging on a bigger level. Um, so the entire narrative of the Bible is that God has created a kingdom of his own. It's a good kingdom. It has order and it produces life. And then this is good and it produces life and so on. But it's not quite how it happened. God's plan is to rule his kingdom through us. He's handing the keys to his image bearers with the hope and the assumption that we would look after this precious creation and that we would be the judges and rulers that he would be. And in fact, the first time we see the word rule is right at the very beginning of Genesis, where he says, let us make man in our own image that they may rule over the earth. And the story of the Old Testament is that humans are supposed to be the good rulers over creation, ruling and judging with God. But it continues over and over again to fall apart. And we only have to look as far as well, Genesis and then onwards through the books of Judges and Samuel and Kings uh, to know that this ideolo ideology keeps being destroyed. So God's judgment comes in because God cares about us and he cares about his people. Uh, but we as individuals are not the only thing that God cares about. He cares about us as individuals, but here in the West we have a pretty individualized idea of how things affect us. Um, but through history, this isn't, hasn't really been the case and isn't in a lot of societies around us. It's how things happen as a whole. So one of the things that might help us is to realize that God's judgment comes, it does come in the form of individual, but it comes on a greater scale. Um, most of the Old Testament's focus on sin and guilt and subsequent forgiveness is primarily at the corporate level nation, people group, society, rather than in private individual level. And I think you can kind of think about it as if the, if the whole is working as it's supposed to be, it's easier to fix the individual broken parts rather than the other way up. Okay, we're going to look now at Genesis 4. And um, if you've got your Bible, you can turn. This is in the NIV. <coughs> and I forgot my Bible, so I'm just going to read it off the screen. Um, and Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's, brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Edom. So it's quite an incredible story of God's character. Um, and I think um, we're going to look through um, a couple of different things that God offers Cain. I've um, managed to make them, three of them all fit in with the same letter. So um, I'm doing something well here. Um, I have done a bit of prep for this lesson. Um, so the first thing is that God um, provides Cain with the opportunity to do the right thing. Um, you get the feeling from the verses and what we know about God's relationship with Adam and Eve, that God and Cain have a relationship. So in the message, look at these verses. <coughs> Why this tantrum? Why the soul king? If you do well, won't you be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is lying in wait for you, ready to pounce. It's out to get you. You've got to master it. God speaks to Cain like we speak to our children. He knows his personality. He sees his face. He says, why, why are you looking like that? He knows his moods. He offers him a way out of his tantrum. And if you've had toddlers, you know that this is a key skill in um, getting them to survive toddlerdom. You need to get them out of a way to have this, this tantrum. And it's Cain that's holding back from God from the beginning. Abel's offerings were honoring to God and they cost something. They were the best. Cain just kind of brought something. But God, in his kindness, doesn't squash Cain then. He kind of puts his arm around him. He gives him an opportunity to do the right thing. And he tells him, you have the ability to rule over this sin. But Cain um, ignores him and God confronts him. Uh, I think you'll find this is the first example of answering back in, um, in the Bible when um, Cain, so he is really acting like a, he's acting like a teenager at this point. Um, and God says he provides the punishment. He gives him the boundaries. No, you can't do this. The injustice that has happened is crying out to me. This is what he says. Uh, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And so the punishment <coughs> he, um, he exacts on Cain. So he hears the cry of Abel's blood and he cannot ignore it. So he puts distance between him and Cain. And if we look, this is similar to what happens between him uh, to God and his parents. Notice how the consequences of sin are further increased. Adam and Eve's sin made the ground cursed, but now Cain is cursed more than the ground. Adam's curse would, that, would be that there was painful toil to bring about the fruits of the ground, and now Cain's curse is that his painful toil of the ground wouldn't even produce fruit. And Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. 
And now Cain is driven further out, becoming a fugitive and a wanderer. So whereas Adam and Eve's relationship with God is broken and the relationship with each other is affected, the consequence of Cain's sin is that his entire relationship with his family is broken. But even in the midst of this, the third thing that God offers Cain uh, is protection. The Lord puts a mark on Cain so that no one who met him would kill him. So there's a hint of good news even here, just this judgment that God's had to make against Cain. He's still leaving the door open for him. Just like God made garments for Adam and Eve to cover their shame, God provides for Cain as well by putting a mark on his forehead to protect him from being killed by others. And we might think that this is kind of getting off the hook pretty easily. He's killed his own brother. But Cain says, this punishment is more than I can bear. Even here, God gets involved with Cain's life. He puts his mark on Cain. He claims Cain is his own. He's a murdering, lying, answering back. And he still involves himself with Cain's life and identifies himself with him. If we look closely, we see this story through the arc of the Old Testament. God choosing to identify himself with humanity, even though we'll never measure up to his love, holiness, and perfection. So this is his judgment, but it's also his compassion. The judgment of God allows the Lord to express his holiness and perfection, but still allows him to stay connected to us. So in the character of God, he also translates this judgment over a people group. And we're just going to look at Exodus 6 in a second. So the people group, of course, is Israel. And if you've been around since the beginning of the new year, this will be quite a familiar story. Um, it's Israel as they have been um, is sitting in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They're being oppressed by a dominant king who is using and abusing them. And Moses has been sent to tell the people, uh, don't worry, God's coming, something's going to take place. <coughs> this isn't going to be your circumstance any longer. God's judgment is coming. And so we pick it up here. Um, and Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, have you brought me um, why have you brought trouble? Is this why you send me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on the people and you haven't rescued us at all. And then the Lord said to Moses, and here we go. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of this country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with the uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give you it as a possession. I am the Lord. So what we see here is God remembering his promise 
to people and stepping in and intervening for an entire people group. He talks about his covenant, which he's established and he's following through with. He says he will redeem the Israelites with mighty acts of judgment. So you can bet your bottom dollar they were not worried about God's judgment because they knew that what it meant for them was that the boundaries were being enforced. They were not having to to deal with Pharaoh's breaking of the boundaries over and over again. There was a finite place, like Nigel talked about last week, that God allows in his mercy people to push the boundaries, but then he comes with his judgment. He provides a way out. He's punishing Pharaoh for overstepping those boundaries over and over again, and he puts a mark on Israel through the Passover to protect them. So in this context, it sounds like what the Israelites are longing for and what in our hearts we long for, for God to come and deliver us from the oppression, whether it's spiritual, mental, financial, or emotional, whatever that oppression that we're living under. But it may be if we are still worried about God's judgment, it's maybe that we identify with Pharaoh more than we do with the enslaved people of Israel and how their hearts would be yearning and crying out for someone, for that God far off and distant that they've been crying to, to show up and smash and crush the heads of the enslavers. There are quite a lot of, unfortunately, examples throughout history where the church has been silent when people have been oppressed. And maybe we need to put ourselves in that place and identify a little more with those who are suffering that we might then see God's judgment and liberation as something very differently. God's judgment and his justice are linked. In Micah, it says that God has shown us what the Lord requires of us, and it's to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with him. So just coming into land, we're, we're just going to watch this little video from the Bible Project on justice. And I think if we, as we watch, if we ask the Holy Spirit if there's anything he wants to put his finger on in the way that we see judgment and justice, uh, the way maybe we've been judged in the past or the way that we can help bring God's judgment and his kingdom and authority and rulership here on earth. Because he partners with us to change the atmosphere, to change societies and strongholds that there are over them and so we are going to have a look at this and then there's going to be we're going to have some time for um, reflection um, there's some questions that we'll put up in the lead up to communion so if we're ready for the um, video if you were a praying mantis it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but 
we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. 
And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Okay. So there's... So if we can just have those um, questions, Catherine, that last slide. Um, we're going to have communion this morning. And um, just as I'm going to let Paul come and, um, and do that, but just as um, we're thinking about that, we're thinking about the things that we've brought up this morning. I won't read out the questions, but I'll just let you think about them. We sang this morning, who rules the nations with truth and justice? And it is true that we live in the now and the not yet, that Jesus does rule the nations with truth and justice. But we don't always see that. And part of the now and the not yet is, is our participation. It's, what do, Lord, what do we need to do? Where do you want us to partner with you? So we'll just um, just spend some time, just, we'll just pray and then um, we'll hand over to Paul. Lord, I, I thank you that you are a God of truth and justice and that your judgment is a good thing, that you, when you come and bring your judgment, it means that people are set free and means that, that things are set right. And we ask that you would come and shape our understanding of, of your judgment this morning and how you want us to think about you and how to think about what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you for your love. We thank you for sending Jesus to us. Please come and be with us this morning as we, as we work through these things.